0: And I'm going to talk about Buddhism, uh, because that's what I talk about. So, um, as you probably found out, Buddhism is an interesting uh, way of looking at life. Because it doesn't have much to do with God. It doesn't have much to do with the beginning of the world. It has a whole lot to do with how the heck you accept life the way it is. How do you see the perfection in every moment when you look around and just see how bad it is? You know, political campaigns? Insane, you know? Driving? Insane. Everybody's in a hurry to go no place. Insane. And so Buddhism sort of allows you to come to a place of acceptance with the way things are because the Buddha said everything is ultimately unsatisfactory. And every day, I get up and I look at the world and it's ultimately unsatisfactory. But I still march forward into the suffering and pain of my life. So let me tell you what the Buddha came to understand. As you probably know from your... Did you have a whole chapter in Buddhism? Siddhartha? Okay, cool. India, 2,600 years ago. Prince. You know, he... Um, understood life in a very unique way and that's why we still talk about them today so he looked around at some point in his life after he had seen a dead person a sick person a holy person and, and said why why does everybody have to suffer you know why can't we just have a really good life and then die and be happy that we had a life and, and, and yet when he looked at his own life even as a prince Uh, the son of a king, his life was unsatisfactory too. So he just sort of proclaimed to the universe, come on, end my suffering. All the gods of India, and they had a whole lot of them if you studied Hinduism, come on, there must be one god in India that can end my suffering. And nothing, silence, nobody came forward. So I think at that point he probably said to himself, well, I guess I'm going to have to do it myself. I guess I'm going to have to figure out why humans suffer and then if there's an answer, if I can end my suffering in this lifetime. So that's what he did. He figured out why humans suffer. And in his first talk, as you probably know, the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, the turning of the wheel talk, five ascetics, five practitioners of the path sat down and listened to him speak. And he said, I have discovered four truths and the first truth I've discovered is that life is ultimately unsatisfactory it's never going to be very good at all the second thing I discovered is it's unsatisfactory and not very good at all because we all have desire and craving and thirst and want to attach to the good and want to push away the bad and because we're born with original ignorance we're blind and can't see reality the way it really is the third Truth, when this, of course, is the best one of all. He said, the third truth is, I figured out the answer. I discovered it, and I call it nirvana, the end of suffering. And then the fourth truth I discovered was how to get to nirvana, the Eightfold Path. Now, the Buddha wasn't a philosopher. He didn't theorize What he did is he used his own personal experience, an empirical perspective, and he said, okay, this is what I experience in my life. This is how I understand the world to be, and this is how I change the world. Now, when he talked about changing the world, he didn't talk about changing the world outside, because nobody can do that. What he did, he said, you know what? My whole world exists in this fathom-long body, fingertip to fingertip. That's my world. It's not the world out there, it's the world in here. And I can change what's happening inside, even if I can't change what's happening outside. I can change the way I experience my life. So that gave us all a real opportunity to say, okay, if you don't like the world inside, then do something about it. Don't build another bridge or another freeway that's, not gonna, that's a temporary fix. But change something inside of you that allows you to experience your life in a more skillful way. Now, the Eightfold Path, this is what he came to understand. This is what he actually did, and he left this behind. He said, okay, I'm going to leave this behind because no matter who I talk to, I can't change them. I can't change their world because their world is inside but I can tell them how I changed my world and I use the eightfold path. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration those eight path factors allow us to find our own personal freedom now very few people want to be free it's much more comfortable just to live in your delusional life you know you got disneyland the happiest place on earth it's only a hundred dollars spend the whole day there but then you gotta leave you know and if you ever looked at the people working at disneyland they don't think it's the happiest place on earth because they're working you know they're happy when you leave because they get to stop working you know you just look around you go yeah 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 Okay, what can I do? Where do I start? How do I make my life better? How do I end my suffering? Number one, five precepts. We can all do that today. We can start changing our world, inner world today, by following the five precepts. Does anybody know what the five precepts are? Have you heard that concept before? The five precepts? Okay, everybody that becomes an official Buddhist, and we have a ceremony to become a Buddhist, accepts the five training precepts. So let me start there. The first training precept is, I will practice, get that now, it's not commandment, it's not you have to, it's I will practice not to take life. First one. Well... You know, you would think that that would be relatively easy. You would think you could get up in the morning and say to yourself, Well, today, I'm not taking out any human beings. You know? And you can go through your whole day without killing anybody and feel really proud about the fact that you did it or didn't do it. Okay? But now, let's add a few more living things in there. Let's say lions and tigers and bears. Well, you know, Polisferides probably don't have too many lions or tigers or bears. Got more horses probably than anything else. And humans and so, okay, made it. Got through the whole day not killing a lion and tiger or bear. Now, let's add some more little creatures to this. How about cockroaches and mosquitoes and spiders and ants? Can you go through the whole day without taking any of them out? you know because oftentimes they invade our space we have human space sometimes we call it a house and that's our space and we spend a lot of money and it's air-conditioned and it really looks nice and there's this cockroach uninvited in your space and you say to yourself okay well it's real easy I'll just get the raid and I'll spray it it'll be dead in a moment and I'll just take it outside and then my life will be good again because the cockroach isn't in my space but if you're a practicing Buddhist and have taken the first precept not to take life, that little guy is living. So you've got to figure out how to take him, her, out of your space without killing it. Sometimes you get a jar and you cover the jar and, it, and it's in there and you put some paper underneath that and pick the little guy out, put him outside. You saved his life. He'll be back in, in a couple hours. You know, that's how they are. But you didn't kill it. And you took a moment to reflect on the quality of life and how rare it is to be born. Now, I don't know if you ever thought about it in this way, but you were not here for a very long time. Like forever. You were not here forever. And then, somehow you showed up. And you'll be here 50, 60, 70 years, maybe, and then you'll never be back forever. Your life has bookends of forever that you didn't exist. And most of us take it for granted that, of course, I'm here. You know, what's the big deal? It's an amazing deal it's an impossibility the chances of you being born are like seven billion to one you know two people on this earth we got seven billion people now we even have more animals than that two people on this earth liked each other enough to have you what are the chances? how many people don't you know? about seven billion you know and then you meet somebody What are the chances you like them? Not very much. Then, to like them enough to say, oh, you know what? Let's get married and share our money and lives together. Forget it. Rare. And even if they do make that commitment, it usually doesn't last a lifetime. But you're still here and those cockroaches and those birds and those fish and all the other animals that walk swim and fly on this earth chances of their little parents coming together and having them remarkable so it's just a way of honoring life it's just saying okay you made it you're part of the team this is my team in 100 years we'll all be dead so while we're here let's all work together and try not to kill each other well I thought the other day has there ever been a time when we haven't had a war you know do you know every day that you're alive on this earth there are 20 or 30 wars going on right now around the world and why? well people disagree with each other some people think this is better or that is better and the best way to solve those issues is just to kill the people that don't agree with you. We call it war. Isn't that insane? You know, isn't that just insane that we kill all these people because they don't agree with us? Or we can't agree with them? Or we experience the world differently than they do? Or they have a different language than we do? Or different customs than we do? And we want the water and they want the water and we're not going to share, we're just going to kill so we'll have all the water to ourselves? It's just insane. So when you become a Buddhist, you take that first precept, I will practice not to take life. And it should be subtitled, I will try to understand why life is so important. Okay, the second thing, second precept, I will practice not to take stuff that doesn't belong to me. I will practice not to take what is not given. Now... Long ago, as Americans, we gave up our citizenship. I know you didn't understand what you were doing, but we have all become consumers of America. Our job is to buy and sell. And we're really good at that. We buy stuff all the time. Stuff we need, stuff we don't need, stuff we like, stuff we don't like. All the time. And every time we buy something, what do we get? A receipt certifies our ownership. Now let me ask you, really, do you ever really own anything? Or is it just one big illusion to keep the economy going and the stock market profitable? When's the last time you looked at your car and said, I am so happy that I own you. And then the next day somebody steals it. And you go, what? I got the receipt it's my car or somebody runs into it somebody steals the radio wow how could they do that I feel so violated I own it we don't own anything we just use stuff until somebody wants it more than we do we just use stuff until the new model comes out and that seems so much more appealing we just use stuff until it breaks we just use stuff until we can't find it anymore because we have so much other stuff that it's buried underneath so we really don't own anything and yet we think we do that's the illusion, the ignorance we live under so somebody takes our stuff that we think we own, that we're really just using and it bums us out we want to go to the police department, he took my stuff I didn't give him permission wow, so This is a big illusion. This is a strong illusion. As a Buddhist, we honor the illusion and we say, I will not take what is not given, because everybody thinks they own a bunch of stuff that they really don't. And if I take their stuff that they think they own, they will suffer more. And Buddhism is about the end of suffering, so I will not take their stuff. Easy. Third one, no sexual misconduct man this is tough huh LA everything's okay so what's sexual misconduct and what's the big deal doesn't everybody have sex don't we have seven billion people somebody's having sex out there yeah well the deal is that in order to have sex and have a family we need to honor the family unit we need to say okay four things as a buddhist that we don't do or we practice not doing because the buddhists do it everybody does it but we practice not doing it number one i will practice not to have sex with people that are married you would think that's pretty easy but just watch one episode of tmz and you will see people breaking that precept I will practice not to have sex with people who are engaged. They are ready to make the commitment, a lifelong commitment. We need to honor that because the building blocks of any society are the family. That's how we make a society. We have a bunch of families who have a bunch of kids. Number three, I will practice not having sex with children. Yeah, makes sense, doesn't it? They're being supported by their parents. They don't want to have kids. They're 12. They don't want to have kids. They want to play baseball. Yeah, leave them alone. And last but not least, do not have sex with people against their will. Even if they're unconscious, do not have sex with them. Stay away. It's okay. You don't have to have sex with everybody all the time. Life's better if you don't, and it's a lot cheaper, too. Okay. <laughs> but how about these monks and nuns that keep walking around? Why are they celibate? Why can't they have sex? Why did the Buddha say, if you're going to be a monk or a nun, you cannot have sex? He said that for two real good reasons. He said the first reason you can't have sex is you need a life of simplicity. You will not be working. You will not have a regular paycheck. You will be living on donations. You don't know how many donations you're going to get. So don't have sex. Don't have a girlfriend. Don't have mortgage payments. Don't have car payments. Don't have college loans. You have to keep it simple so you can exist and do what you do and not have to have a job so I haven't worked in 25 years when I became a monk I got a lifestyle what's a lifestyle? it's something you don't visit it's something you live 24-7 I can't take a vacation, where do I go when I'm not doing what I do? where do I go when I'm not being who I am? But the lifestyle allowed me to work on myself. Which is what the Buddha did. The Buddha worked on himself. He reflected on what it meant to be him. I reflect every day on what it means to be me. And generally, I don't have to go on the freeway and fight traffic and see all the unhappy faces behind the windshields. I don't have to do that because I don't got to go to work. Wow, how cool is that? So people sometimes give me money. The center where I live gives me room to live. I'm old enough now to have Medicare, but before Medicare, I had health insurance because of the center where I lived, and they gave me a little bit of money. So they were able to support me in a very simple way and allow me to do what I do. Mm. Now, the second reason monks and nuns don't have sex is the most important reason. When you are in an intimate relationship, you will be happy, you'll be in love, it'll be wonderful. But there's one thing you will never be, and that is free. Free from suffering. Every relationship has suffering attached to it. Everyone. You may not think so. You may think, well, surely there's somebody out there for me. And I'll find them, and we'll get married, and we'll have a wonderful life. We'll have children, we'll have a dog, we'll have a picket fence. But you know, one day, they die. They're going to leave you. Every person in your life will leave you if you don't leave them first. Because things change, and people die. So, you're not going to be ultimately happy in any relationship, because it's going to have to come to an end. Everything. So there's this concept of non-attachment. Can you live in the world, have relationships, be kind, be in love, but not be attached? Man, that is so difficult to do. I'll talk about that later. So those are the four things Buddhists try to avoid, and the two reasons, monks and nuns, are celibate number four, I will practice right speech I will practice not to lie, not to have idle chatter or gossip not to have harsh speech, not to have malicious speech have you watched any of the debates between the presidential candidates can you apply those four aspects of right speech to anything they say in that hour, hour and a half, no you can't It's, it's a cruel way to see people act to each other but they do they want something more than anything else they want to lead our country (sighs) we're in trouble what can I say but it's always been that way there's never been a perfect president everybody has had their stuff that we just had to overlook or accept and there's no perfect people that's why there's no perfect president there are no perfect people except maybe the Arhans and the Buddha, but they would never run for office. Forget it. Might have to declare war. Can you imagine a Buddhist president declaring war when the first precept is not to take life? You know, you might have to declare war to protect America. But sometimes the religious idealism gets in the way of the reality of a state or nation. So... Malicious speech, harsh speech, false speech, gossip, idle chatter. Can we avoid that? Can we just have skillful speech? Can we have good speech? Maybe sometimes not say anything because there's nothing good to say. Noble silence. That might be the way to go. And number five, on the list of things to avoid, I will practice not getting high. Go figure you know we've got an initiative on the ballot to make marijuana legal just what we need as we go driving on the freeway a joint in one hand and a cell phone in the other good luck in getting to your destination in one piece so what's wrong with getting high? everybody gets high all the time, don't they? they can hardly wait to get high there's a party this weekend, we're all getting high, it'll be so much fun well the problem with getting high is this it steals any wisdom you might have you could have a master's degree from UCLA drink two cases of beer and not even be able to put together a complete sentence that's how it sort of works all the things we've learned and practiced and want to be go right out the window every time we get high now sure it might feel good but you know it also feels good not to get high it also feels good to have kindness and clarity as your leader and not delusion and ignorance it also feels good to have a complete conversation with somebody that both parties can understand have you ever been straight and they've been high and you try talking to them and you go what the hell are they saying? you know what's the point they want to make? so we practice not getting high Now, basically, it's drugs and alcohol. When I'm going to talk about sugar or hostess cupcakes, that's what I like to do. But we're just talking about alcohol and drugs. Can you live your entire life without getting high? And would you be better off for that? And would it be a lot cheaper? You know, drugs are expensive. And then... You know, DUI driving, and then the lawyer, and it's like $10,000, and your car has been locked up, and you've got to pay $500 just to get it out, and all these things in your life, you know, oh, man. And if you didn't get high, none of that stuff would be a problem for you. So those are the five precepts that official Buddhist practices. I will practice. Not I will do. I will practice. That's how it starts. That's the building block. That's how to make your life better today, right now, in this very moment. For five years, I was a volunteer at Central Juvenile Hall in downtown Los Angeles and spoke to a lot of the young people there about suffering and the end of suffering. And one of the recommendations I gave them was this. If you want to start reducing your suffering right now, today, just say please and thank you. And staff will be so surprised, they won't know what the hell to do. He said, please. You know, that's how it works. Our words can change the way we experience the world, our actions can change the way we experience the world, our intention, our mind can change the way we experience the world. Up to us. It's our world. Each and every one of us has our own personal, unique world and life. Never has been lived before. Nobody has ever had your life before. There is no manual to tell you how to do it because you are unique. Never happened before. Will never, ever happen again. We have seven billion unique humans walking on this earth. So we have to sort of figure it out ourselves. And Buddhism says, yes, nobody can do it. Don't care who you pray to, don't care what kind of devotion you have, nobody can change the way you experience your world except for you. Be a light unto yourself. Big responsibility. Accountability. If I fail, I fail because I failed. If I succeed, I succeed because I succeeded. That's how it starts. It doesn't end there, but it always starts with us. So what do I do in the morning, first thing? I do a loving-kindness meditation. It goes like this. May I be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to me. May no difficulties come to me. May no problems come to me. May I always find fulfillment may i also have patience courage understanding and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties problems and failures in life me it's about me i need to have that mindset i need to upload that every day before i hit the freeway i gotta think that now there's part two see Our spiritual journey always begins with us. But then we have to include everybody else because they're part of our journey as well. So the second part of that is goes like this. May my parents, partners, pets, brothers and sisters, friends and relatives, all the people I don't know and all the people I don't like May they, too, be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering, etc., etc. I'm including all those people now. And the two categories that are the hardest to include are the people you don't know and the people you don't like. Why should I care about somebody I don't know and will never meet? They're not going to be part of my life. They're not going to change the way I experience the world. They're over there and I'm over here. That separation, according to Buddhism, is a big illusion. The ultimate reality in Buddhism is this. We are all interconnected and interdependent. None of us lives alone, apart from everything else. We are connected in a very special way. Sometimes hard to see the connections, because all we see is the separation or the differences but connections nonetheless so now I'm including my family and my pets who I'm most close to and then my relatives and my friends who I'm second most close to and then all those people I don't know and then all the people I don't like man you know when I was younger I had a big list of people I didn't like as I get older it's a shorter list I'm not sure it's because they died, or just because I'm getting better. But the list is shorter, but I still don't like people sometimes. And why don't I like them? What do I see in them that makes me disturbed? And what I see in them are the parts of me that I haven't resolved yet. Those issues, those underlying subconscious issues that have been there my whole life, and I haven't been able to look in the mirror and see them, so I see them in other people and don't like them, because of something in me that I don't like and don't want to own and don't want to be. So, what do you do? So you look at somebody you don't like and you go, Wow, look at me. Look at I'm in there. I see it. It's reflecting back on me now. Nothing to do with the person, but all to do with me. How would your life be different if that was your truth? That it wasn't because of them, it was because of you. And if you started to change you in a more vigorous way, you would like them. Or at least be indifferent to them or at least have equanimity about them see how this thing is working now? man, we get up in the morning and we're just projecting and changing our mindset and uploading really good personal information love and kindness then finally the last part of that loving kindness meditation is all creatures with form or without with perception or without with consciousness or without, with legs or without. May they too be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. That's the cats, that's the dogs, that's the birds, that's the fish, that's all the other creatures in your life. The mosquitoes, the cockroaches, the ants, all those. That's the third part. I got to love them too. I got to accept them for what they are. They are part of my journey, part of my trip. Can I do that? Yes. I can. I can do that if I every morning upload and every evening upload before I go to sleep. These three aspects of loving-kindness. Now Buddhism is really unique because we don't have a big fondness for love. We don't look at love as being the ultimate. We look at love as being one of the strongest attachments you'll ever have. And what did the Buddha say about attachment? and desire he said that always leads to suffering when you say I love what do you really mean I love my shoes I love my car I love my girlfriend I love my school I love my football team that one word is used indiscriminately all the time to express our attachment and desire for something there's a control issue that comes in love there's a dominance that comes in love, there's it's mine, I want it because it makes me feel better, love, huh? Huh? Businessman's love, I'll love you if you love me, all this stuff. So Buddhism says, no, no, you just can't use the word alone, it doesn't stand alone very well. You've got to put kindness, love and kindness, metta, M-E-T-T-A, love and kindness. That's called a metta meditation, a loving-kindness meditation. Those three aspects, love and kindness. What does kindness do? It tempers the attachment. Kindness and love together becomes middle-way love. Middle-way love. What's the Buddhist path? The path of the middle-way. See how that works? Can you love your boyfriend or girlfriend? And they want to leave? Can you go help them pack? Or are you are going to try to talk them out of it? No, I love you so much. I'm so attached to you. I can't think of living without you. You are the half that was missing in my life. Well, codependence can be an issue too. And it doesn't lead to the end of suffering. So the Buddha said, now you're pretty much in this alone. And you're going to have wonderful humans and others come into your life. And you're going to have attachment. You're going to have kindness. You're going to have love for them. But as soon as you cling and grasp and hold on to, what will happen is suffering will start to occur. Bummer. You would think life would be easier than it is. But it's not. So, there you go. Loving kindness. Be nice to everybody around you. More importantly, be nice to yourself. Because this is a tough journey. You're going to fail and succeed a million times. Love yourself each way. Don't take too much credit for your success because there were 9,999 other reasons you succeeded. And don't take all the credit for your failure because there were 9,999 other reasons why you failed. It's a team effort. Even though you're looking at it as being alone, I stand alone together with everybody. I stand alone together with everybody. If you've ever seen cat colonies, I have one in the back of the meditation center. We have a cat colony. We have eight wonderful, fat and fluffy cats that I feed twice a day. They're marvelous. But you know the cats never get side by side when they're all congregating in a colony. There's always distance between them. They're alone together. And when I feed them, I know certain cats can't be fed next to each other because that attachment to the food will get in the way of the other cat eating. So I, I know exactly where to separate them and how that works. So they all come together. I have a little hammer that I hit three times on a wooden piece of wood, and they know that's the call. It's dinner time or breakfast time. And then they come and they gather around and they eat, and sometimes they give them seconds and they have little treats, and they're always so happy. And then they all leave. Now ever has one said thank you to all the effort I put into feeding them and all the money I spent on the gaffer. That's sort of how life is. You know, they, people come, situations come into your life. It's wonderful. You enjoy it. And then they leave without saying thank you. And there you go. And then the next one happens. And then the next one happens. Can you live a life without having to be said thank you to? Can you live a life and always say thank you? Always show gratitude for whatever's happening moment to moment? Because it's special. You're a miracle. There's only one of you. It's rare that you're here. You weren't here forever. You're going to be gone forever. The middle is yours. Can you look at it and say, Wow, what gratitude do I have? You know, to my parents, to the earth, to the food that's grown. that keeps me alive man cool okay so now we got all that down we're saying please and thank you all the time practicing the five precepts we got gratitude and now we're gonna start going after the mind the mind that little guy inside your head that keeps telling you what to do and what not to do based on education and peer pressure family values TV shows all the reasons that come to make you you Have you ever wondered why you think the way you do? All the influences in your life that have created that for you? That allows you to write the story of your life? See, a wise person, much wiser than I am, once said, Our whole life is just a bunch of stories, one after the other. And sometimes we're the victor, and sometimes we're the victim, and we have other players in our stories, and we give them value, or we take away their value, blah, blah, blah. And that's how we live our life. We have to have a story. When I got up this morning, my story was I got to go to Polis Verdes. Okay, which meant I had the story of getting into the car and turning it on. I had the story of getting on the freeway. I had the story of being the victim of the freeway. Four miles an hour. I imagined myself below my breath saying, I'm sure glad I don't have to live forever, as I crawled along. There's my exit, Pacific Coast Highway, no traffic there, bumper to bumper backed up, block after block after block. I say to myself, where the hell is everybody going? Finally a whole block with no cars, what happened? I kept rewriting the story, aha, I can go 20 miles an hour, look at that, fantastic. I can go as fast as that Maserati next to me, we're both going 20 miles an hour. My car was 5,000, his car was 100,000. See how the story works, we just keep going on, victor, victim, victor, victim, wow, good, bad, good, bad, pull in, pull into the parking lot, visitor space open. It said visitor. It was open. It was for me. I'm writing the story. They knew I was coming. They left the spot open. Ah, cool. Just pulled it. See how that sort of works? And all the situations, all the people, all the educational systems we have ever been involved in have given us that pencil to write the story of our life. And that happens where? Between our ears all the time our brain never stops thinking we're sleeping, we're dreaming, we're awake, we're thinking man, even in meditation you're thinking but it doesn't have to be you in meditation so we have two kinds of meditation that we do one is called insight meditation one is called tranquility meditation they are designed, number one, to give us insight and to give us kindness Insight and kindness. Cool. 44 different kinds of meditation, depending on the personality that's going to meditate. And I want to tell you, it's one of the hardest things I've ever done. Meditation. People say, well, you know, all you got to do is sit there and do nothing. Have you ever tried to do nothing? You can't do nothing. Your brain says, you're doing nothing, you got to do something. Move your leg. Do something. Why are you sitting here? You have laundry to do you can't just sit here and do nothing there's a great TV show on, the football game's on you're missing it, you're sitting here, get up, watch the game you know, and then you go, oh man, and so you get up and you go do your next thing and you go do the next thing and the brain never stops, so the idea in meditation is this, our self our ego, our personality is a great tool It allows us to interact with this very complicated world and exist. But our ego, our self, our personality is a terrible master. It only thinks about itself. Nobody else. Its job is to keep us alive. And in most cases it does a really good job, but it discounts all the other lives in the world as well. Because they're not you and you're not them, according to relative reality. Ultimate reality, we're all interconnected and interdependent. Relative reality, we're all separate and individuals. And our life matters the most. I just saw a posting on Facebook Clown Lives Matter. What the hell is this clown thing going on? You know? So people I guess that don't have a life and they want to have a clown life. So we can look at the way we think and we can change it. We can literally change the way we think and we can literally change the shape of our brains through meditation. It's been proven. Clinically, medically, meditation changes the way your brain looks. That change allows us to experience the world in a much more skillful way. Now, I keep using the word skillful because there is no evil in the world. There is no good in the world, according to Buddhism. There is skillful and unskillful. When I was, again, with the probation department and Central Juvenile Hall, East Lake Division, I never saw an evil kid. Not one. I saw a bunch of unskillful young people who needed to learn some new skills in order to live in community in a more wholesome and better way. That's all. And they had hundreds of volunteers going there every day to give new skills, to share what they've learned, to help these young people integrate back into the community and have a life. Not think about the whole world as their neighborhood, but think about the whole world. See all the things you could do, all the professions you could experience and have, all the ways to make money and to be in love, all the different ways. And the volunteers are there every day. So what limits us? We limit us. You know? If you think you know, you have become very limited. If you think you don't know, everything is a possibility. Everything! I don't know. That means you can do anything. If you know you can't do it, you can't do it. Because your world is, I don't think I can do it. It's not possible. So Buddhism is a religion for most people who practice Buddhism. Buddhism is a philosophy for people that don't want it as a religion. Buddhism is a lifestyle. All cotton, vegetarian, go see the Dalai Lama talk. Life is good. And Buddhism is fun to read about. Thousands of books have been written about Buddhism. But not one book will ever make you a different person until you see that the book is talking about something inside of you and not outside of you. That it means that you are in charge. You can be anything you want because you don't know you can't be it. What do you want? Well, I don't know. That's so good. When I was in school, when I was, how much time? Okay, when I was in school and I was your age, people told me I had to have a goal. I had to be something. I had to be somebody. I had to learn well so I could succeed. And you know what? I I didn't buy it because I never knew what I wanted to be or what I wanted to do or what I needed to learn in order to succeed. And they were telling me reading, writing and arithmetic was my answer. How many times have I used algebra in the last 10 years? Well, let me see. No, never did. I'm not saying math is a bad thing. Math is an abstract way of looking at reality. Language gives us an idea of separateness and naming and using what we can name. So those are all good things. But the real issue is how can I be what I want to be? And then the next issue is, what do I want to be? When I was in high school in Wisconsin, I had never met a Buddhist. I knew nothing about Buddhism. I came to Buddhism in 1979. So I had lived quite a few years without Buddhism. I thought I was happy. I was fairly good looking. I had hair, polyester shirt, had girlfriends, it was good. And then I came to Buddhism and I realized my life was filled with suffering. I said, oh man, just when I thought I had it all worked out, now I'm coming here and it's filled with suffering. But the Buddha said, I can help you. I can help you end your suffering. First thing you need to do is get rid of that polyester shirt. Okay, I'm wearing all cotton from now on. And there it started. Five precepts, meditation, reading ancient texts, understanding that I could be anything or nothing that I wanted to be. So the first half of my life was I was going to be somebody. I was going to be somebody. Second half of my life, I was going to be nobody. I wanted to be nobody. And I came to the conclusion that nobody dies well. I wanted to die well. So if nobody dies, well, i got to be nobody. But how do you become nobody after being somebody? Well, it's a lot of work. It's hard not to be anybody. Hard not to have opinions. Hard not to have judgments. Hard not to have criticisms. Hard not to be who you think you are. Okay. So you get up, you do your loving-kindness meditation, you do what you need to do, feed the cats, go on the freeway. And then at the end of the day, there's a gratitude that happens. I'm glad I had another day to work on myself.